Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, welcome on. Going to go with that same format that we've gone with the last couple weeks or so. We've got so much to say about some of these teams that we're, we're going to break this into two parts, most likely. And we saw a lot of Warriors basketball over the weekend, both Golden State and Santa Cruz Warriors. So both you and I went to that G League game today to check out James Wiseman in his second game in the G League, coming back from a, his 11-month absence. So let's start here with the fundamentals for the Warriors. We're also going to really get into the Bucks as well from uh, that game last night. So you get a little extra bonus Bucks here, uh, even though this is the Western Conference. We will. And the Golden State Warriors stats on the season, they are 46 and 22, three and five since the last 15 and 60. Those two of those three wins came very recently. Still third in net rating, plus 5.9 per hundred possessions using the cleaning the glass filter. They are 12th in offense, third in defense, and 538's Raptor model projects that they will finish with the third seed in the Eastern Conference. But let's get into it. Big game on ABC on Saturday night. The Warriors dispatch the Bucks 122-109. And there are a bunch of different ways to phrase the headliner. I mean, two members of the Warriors backcourt going for 30 plus and neither of them being Stephen Curry is definitely part of it. But for me, this was a tr- this was a dominant Clay Thompson performance. Yeah, the big headline, you mentioned that two members of the Warriors backcourt went for 30. And it was the first time that two Warriors had gone for 30 points and five assists since Steph and KD did it at the towards the end of 2019, I believe, or 2018, sorry, uh, of 30 points, five rebounds, and five assists is what it was. So the big news was that they started Jordan Poole, Clay Thompson, and Steph Curry. With the numbers on that have been lights out. Let me look actually what this what the numbers are now on those three guys together, just so we have it here after this game for the season. This is incredible. The Golden State Warriors have a this is cleaning the glasses version a plus 41.4 net rating when those three players play together 130 offensive rating 88.6 defensive rating and worth noting none of those minutes come with Draymond Green because Draymond Green has not played with those two or those three sorry yeah Draymond set to make his return on Monday against the Wizards it's interesting too that Brooke Lopez is set to make his return on Monday as well it seems like neither of these teams you know they didn't want to stress Brooke Lopez out in space guarding the Warriors and they didn't want to make Draymond Green guard Giannis Antetokounmpo in his first game back either so I think it's probably strategic that both of these guys are coming back the game after they played against one of the best teams in the league but yeah I mean I think just seeing that lineup together and the Bucks were extremely focused on Stephen Curry we'll talk more about his game in a second but because I I wondered when Jordan Poole was playing so well earlier in the season that he seemed like he was one of the five best players on the Warriors and that he would need to be, at least be in a closing lineup, if not a starting group with Clay Thompson. And it's really hard to defend a team with three guys who can shoot it from 28 feet at any time. I know neither all of those guys are not like unbelievable in terms of percentage this year, 
but all three of them are going to get guarded. And, and I mean, as I, I think this Clay Thompson game, as you alluded to, and we're circling back to now, it was most important just to like reestablish the legend of Clay Thompson, right? To say, oh, they wanted to just only guard Steph and like make Clay and Jordan Poole beat them. And that's exactly what happened. And so maybe that'll reduce some of the pressure on Steph now. I still thought Steph had a really terrible game aside from that. But uh, yeah, what did you see from Clay in this, his season high uh, in points? He had really struggled after the break. He had an illness and it had some really bad games for this one. It reminded me at times of some of the Clay Thompson performances of yore, where started out with Clay taking good taking good shots and making good shots, and then eventually morphed into Clay taking bad shots and still making them anyway. And that was, of course, a huge part of that the quarter that he had against the Sacramento Kings, the sixty point game against the Pacers, though that was mostly clean shots. And Clay just he has that supreme confidence. He took some, like he was guarded by Giannis on a couple possessions, and and did that and it was mostly beyond the three-point line he did have some mid-rangers though too uh well, well he was at one point until the very end his last shot that he missed going for 40 in garbage time he was five of five yes on mid-rangers and he, he was attacking smaller guys in the post like he went javon carter who's a very good defensive player he really abused him for i think three of those five mid-rangers uh went left shoulder in the post a couple of times against him from the left block did his drive left which he does every single time to the, from the right wing to the foul line use his size to create space uh, and pull up um and the, i mean you mentioned that he's taking good shots i mean he's still six seven he shoots it with no dip i mean these are not shots that would necessarily be great shots for a lot of guys and i will say this like clay when he shoots now his balance isn't quite the same like he doesn't it quite is. have that ex- that same picturesque perfect balance perfect shot like the guy that everybody should model their jump shot after some of the times he's like that but he'll he fades more towards the left a little bit he shoots more kind of drifting and maybe he just needs to do that now because he doesn't get as much elevation on his shot after the achilles or just because he was practicing with a torn acl and then a torn achilles for so long it's just his base isn't as good to go straight up and down but so i don't know i i don't know if he's still gonna be clay thompson over the course of at least on the offensive and we'll talk about defense too over the course of an 82 game season or a playoffs but i think because this warriors team has a lot of other threats too and they should be really good defensively when Trayvon gets back they just need him to be the guy who can go off like this it's a great point and a lot of defense is about threat assessment and eyeballs and where you draw where's your attention where players physically positioned and milwaukee had some real challenges with that on saturday of how do we how do we want to scramble behind the play what are we going to concede what is our primary objective and for a lot of the game their primary objective was not letting Stephen curry beat them and curry's eight assists compared to seven attempted shots, no attempted free throws. Some of that is a reminder of how much they were trying to force it out, but also the efficiency of those other players, the, uh, oh, I mean, most of them. And Curry, it's it can be hard in certain circumstances to quantify impact being when it, when it's in terms of like statistical stuff because a lot of what Curry's doing is drawing that extra attention and then there can be a whole bunch of other actions that happen. It's not just like the next pass is the shot. It can be a whole bunch of, it can be a lot of, of other things and it was a reasonable choice for Milwaukee to make even though they do have some, they have Drew Holiday, a damn good defender 
on every every guard, but especially on Steph. And I remember going years and years ago. I asked Drew about that back when he was on the 76ers. I thought I thought he did as good a job as anybody on Steph at that point in his career. And it was a conscious choice by Mike Budenholzer. It was a reasonable choice. But this game served as a reminder that you're challenging other guys to beat you, and the Warriors now have options who can't. Yeah, the in pick and roll, they largely were putting two on the ball. It was Bobby Portis who had a miserable game with two out of ten. He was negative he was 17, and Ibaka played almost all the minutes at center. Those guys combined for 39 minutes, and I don't think they played hardly at all together. Giannis played some minutes at, at center also, and the one time that they decided they were going to try and switch then Steph got loose for one of his few open shots and hit a three. But I did think that Steph, despite his, oh, they're trying to take the ball out of his hands, they're pressuring. I thought he he had the eight assists, but he had four turnovers, and he probably should have had eight turnovers. Some of the, like, some of the passes and some of the turnovers were jaw-droppingly bad, even by Steph Curry standards. And I think he throws some of the worst turnovers in the NBA. Well, and he was going up against Drew and Javon Carter, and he was doing this thing where he just wasn't really like making sure that guys were open. He would dribble around in into the paint and just be like okay well this guy was open three seconds ago the last time I looked over there so I'm just gonna throw the pass and he would get that intercepted or just when he was double teamed he'd try just like a quick behind the back pass which hey when it works you know like that's what's necessary right if you're trying to find someone on a pick and pop if you lob the lob it over the top or like pick up your dribble and make the fundamental white Harlem Globetrotters chest pass the ball's not going to get there in time and they'll close the guy down and the opening won't be there so to just say oh he should make more sure of his passes etc but he was just trying shit that you can't get away with against some of these Bucks guys and those are really the only good things that the Bucks did defensively uh aside from that I thought they were extremely poor uh Eric Name wrote a, a nice piece about this I I noted it on Twitter in the first half that they just had a number of breakdowns there was one play uh, there are two plays I think where they just didn't know who they were guarding one Giannis was guarding Andrew Wiggins and Andrew Wiggins just dribbled right up to the top of the key unguarded and just shot a three uh another time Clay checked in with about a minute left in the first half and Chris Middleton didn't check who he was guarding he thought he was guarding somebody else they never communicated and they just threw the ball down to Clay for a wide open corner three this is after Clay was already on fire as well um Clay actually the Warriors were actually down by six and then Clay hit three three pointers in a row and the Warriors took control they're up like nine at half and then had an 11-0 run I think it was nine of that was Jordan Poole right at the start of the third to break it open and I think Milwaukee never got closer than 12 after that how did you feel about how Giannis played and the way that the Warriors defended him we knew it was going to be different with I mean we brought up the backcourt that was starting that meant Andrew Wiggins was starting at power forward and we wondered how that how Kerr was going to manage that he did yep. what I thought they should do which was Kevon Looney guards Giannis and then Wiggins is somewhere else in that he could be guarding Bobby he, Portis. He started on Portis, yeah. Yes. And I, I thought that Giannis, he did a fair amount of, of mashing in the early going. He also took one of those, I still think of them as settle threes and made it and got he got to the line a ton. And then we also saw Giannis and the Bucks benefiting in the first quarter in particular from something we talked about in the Warriors in like the Warriors part, where the extra attention he was getting, Giannis did a wonderful job at times making that read, making that pass. And in the first quarter, the Bucks just got an incredible amount of open threes. The overall they took 14 threes 
in the quarter. And I think the Warriors were lucky that Milwaukee only made six of them because they were almost all wide open. I mean, there, I don't know if there's any diet of threes where you can say they're lucky to hit six. They're lucky that they only hit six out of four. It was weird because the Bucks missed four corner threes in the period and they hit six above the break in the period. I think there are six of 10 and then 0 of four on corner threes. I mean, they were getting wide open looks, but you know, there's like Steph Curry shoots high 40s on wide open threes, right? Like there's, and the Bucks don't have all Steph Curry. They do have Drew Holiday though, who is now shooting 41% on pull-up threes this year. And he's Ooh. taken like a lot of difficult ones, step backs. That's going to add an interesting element. Um, back to Giannis, him getting his second foul on an aggressive Andrew Wiggins drive in the first quarter did end up limiting things. He still would have gotten to 37 minutes. They played him more in the second, except that Budenholzer waved the white flag with about three, four minutes to go and the Warriors up by 20. Chris Middleton struggled to a nightmare night. He was only two out of 10 on twos. And that's really where the Bucks struggled. Like they got to the line a lot because Giannis had 18 free throw attempts and 31 points, although he was negative 26 in the game. Usually you'll see the Bucks really struggle when he's off the floor. But Middleton was two out of ten on twos, and the Bucks were only 44%. I mean, they were seven, they were seven to twenty-four from floater range. Yeah. And, and I am thinking there's starting to be some park effects. Yes. With the Warriors uh, scoring the same way there are with the Wizards, where shots that are not like logged as like at the rim. I think like the guy just logs it where the guy takes off on, on layups. But, you know, they did. And there was a time, particularly in the third, when Giannis was just getting the line relentlessly. The Warriors were struggling to score down the end of the third. That was the one time that they struggled. But overall, Golden State really played harder than Milwaukee. Uh, they got to way more loose balls. Some of that was luck. I mean, some of these like Steph passes that were getting deflected would just go right to guys that were, that was just lucky. But the Warriors getting 44% offensive rebounds in the first three quarters was not lucky. And so I think it, it was really difficult for the Bucks to get anything going. Chris Middleton just wasn't able to get great looks. I mean, the only two good looks that he got actually were in isolation against Clay Thompson, where I thought Clay still is looking like he's struggling a little bit as an ISO defender he can be better against Middleton and he was on Middleton a lot of the night um Steph did a pretty good job guarding Drew Holiday like Drew drove and got kind of a bad reach in foul on Steph early in the game you're like oh this could be trouble and Steph has been taken advantage of a lot in certain games like that game at Dallas he got killed down the end but the Warriors have been more together defensively they helped him out more and Drew really wasn't able to get going other than from three-point range uh, what, what else do we need to talk about from this one? Serge Ibaka, actually, I thought yeah. had the best game I've seen him have in a Bucks uniform. I haven't watched every one, but it, it was I, I, good. I was struck in warmups. I was, you know, was was right over there that Ibaka very rarely moved his upper body. You know, it sounded like it, it, you, you would have thought that he had a back injury if you didn't know that he had a back injury, which, of course, we do. But I thought he looked he did look a little bit more fluid on the court and he was able to make a couple of plays defensively and he hit two or three threes 15 points in 17 minutes I, I thought it was one of his better games and as you mentioned the Bucks will be buoyed by Brooke Lopez making his return on Monday so I, I thought that that was important on the return I, I, to, well so so Bucks too another guy who I thought played pretty well 
was Javon Carter. Yep. He did get taken advantage of in the post by Clay, as I mentioned, but he, he played better on Steph. The Bucks were like really trying to pressure the ball full court and like up their energy. I don't think that really worked that well. But Carter hit three of four from three. All three of his makes were corner threes. I think they might have all actually even been from the right corner, um, which was they big were, because they were, he, they were all yeah. technically speaking, I think a couple of them were logged off of that, but they were all right in that same area. They were all like breakish yeah. on the right side. Yeah, so that was big because the Warriors were trying to hide Bialica on Carter so that like Kaminga could guard Giannis and Giannis kind of abused Kaminga but Kaminga had some moments himself as well going the other way and so that was big like if Carter can hit some shots like you know when George Hill comes back if he does he's still been out with this neck issue and with Lopez back they can play bigger when Connaughton comes back maybe they won't need Carter but in this stretch it's important uh unfortunately DeAndre Bembry is gonna be out for the year with a torn ACL he had a pretty reckless challenge on Gordon Poole Jordan Poole where he jumped off of one foot landed on Poole foot with his left foot to commit a three-shot foul and then because he landed on Poole's foot and was like trying to avoid him was off balance and landed on his right foot and had that familiar like inward buckle that means ACL so that was that was pretty ugly it was like right up against the stands everyone knew uh, what had happened immediately it was pretty ugly Sammy you could even see like fans yelling for the trainer to like come over there um what were you gonna say though you're gonna talk more about the Warriors I think yes that yeah the returning the returning center for the Bucks was also a reminder that the when the Warriors get Draymond back who plays power forward and center that probably means Bielitsa is going to be excised from the rotation and that will be very good news for the Warriors overall he's yeah he, he was better in this game though, he with, was with better in this assists, game but but it, yeah I mean that there was I, I tweeted it there was this he the best play that he had in the first part of the game when he was really he was struggling he played better in the second part oh yeah was yeah. A, he kind of got loose on a drive and and just completely whiffed the layup I think he heard Giannis's footsteps and the groan from the crowd, it was, it's, it's truly special. I mean, we're hearing it more in Staples Center this year of a crowd that expects so little, but then gets even less is just so pained. And that's what happened on that Bielitsa layup. Well, he, he passes up the open three, which he does a lot. Then he somehow like gets to the basket and everyone's like, yeah, like starts yelling. And then he, he somehow like shot the ball over the rim from right to left. <laughs> like it was like from a, on a straight on layup, the it was ball very like weird. went from the right side of the basket over the left side of the basket. It was, it was very odd. Uh, um, I had a question for you. What, what did you think about Kaminga and Moody in this one? Yeah, Moody was... Uh, didn't hit any of his threes he was actually negative 14 i don't think he necessarily earned that he continued to rebound which was big but uh and Kaminga was 6 of 16 a lot of those misses were like his own tips on the offensive glass i mean he we were talking about it during the game of like when's the last time the warriors had a player who was that athletic like maybe you know the first chris weber stint <laughs> like they're really or, or latrell jason, jason richardson oh jason richardson is the one yeah or baron davis yeah they that's how did we not think of him when we were talking about that yeah jason richards would be the guy but i mean kaminga just it takes him so little time to load up on some of these dunks it's really impressive and he's come a long way in terms of just being able to move his feet his technique defensively I mean, he still makes some makes some mistakes and has some bad fouls and stuff but uh he's been contributing for them it'd be very interesting to see when draymond returns i guess he'll probably get some power forward minutes still at that point i also just as a reminder 
of how good the Warriors are when Andrew Wiggins is going well with 21 points, 8 of 16. He had that drive early. He'd been struggling like 40% from the line since the start of February. Hadn't had 20 points in a game since January. Had 21, 8 of 16 from the field here. But he was really aggressive on the offensive glass. He had three offensive rebounds. Playing power forward, I think, might actually have been good for him. Working with all that spacing, having a little bit easier of a matchup. I mean, he was being guarded by Portis a fair amount of the time a matchup that he was able to take advantage of a little bit more let's see if i had anything else on the bucks here yeah i I just really want to see how brooke lopez looks and how it looks when Connaughton and hill are back and once they do that bobby portis can come off the bench uh i was not encouraged by how grayson allen played in this one he did hit four three-pointers he was four or nine from three in 28 minutes but he also was just a big problem for them defensively and so I predict that when it really gets down to it, he'll probably start games still in the playoffs. But I think when it gets down to it, that Wes Matthews and George Hill are going to play over him. Impact Connaughton. Yeah. I mean, Connaughton really is more of a 3-4 for them. He's not in direct competition. But if they can get everyone healthy, the addition of Wes Matthews as just a, he didn't play well in this game offensively but i thought he looked pretty decent defensively he got a fair amount of the time on curry and he's still not something you can just leave open or anything so i i think if they can get that eight man rotation going and lopez looks good again that's when i think they can really start rolling and they're just playing too many guys right now that are just not that great of players and have too many weaknesses Let's talk about what we saw from James Wiseman today in uh, his second game with the Santa Cruz Warriors against G League Ignite. Wiseman, you know, he looked physically, you know, was moving down, moving up and down the floor well, had a couple of, you know, jumping for blocks and for dunks. But watching him against G League Ignite competition, I did not think, oh, yeah, he can be like playing minutes that matter on a playoff in a playoff rotation a month from now, two months from now. I saw a player who has work to do and who has physical tools, but it's going to take time. He looks like the same guy to me, I think, which the same weaknesses and the same strengths. I mean, I think he wasn't, he had some moments where he got a little bit tired. That's not surprising. This is second game back in competition. He wasn't, even before that, he wasn't used to playing as many minutes as he's played in these G League games. Um, you know, he can definitely dunk the ball around the rim. I liked his activity on the offensive glass, which is an area where I was disappointed in him last year. And he has put on some weight, looked stronger, um, was able to carve out some space under the basket against uh, Michael Foster Jr., mostly a, a guy who's younger than him, but probably prospect for the G League night you know Amir Johnson is on this team as well so it wasn't just like total patsies that he was going against it from a physical standpoint the defense you know there was still one play against Foster in the post where he just jumped for a pump fake when he had him contained I know you hate that when he, he in particular but bigs in general don't trust their size um you know he did show some passion like he was like egging the crowd on after he got a couple of dunks right at the end of the first half there was a play where he brought the ball up and then tried to drive on his man and someone just stepped in helping at the nail and just took the ball away from him off the dribble the post-ups looked pretty bad other than one turn in face where he was able to take one hard dribble and go in and dunk it generally if he has someone between him and the basket he doesn't really have an understanding for how to go up strong and get fouled and knock his guy backwards with legal contact and create space and maybe that's something that will come as he gets more experience but it's still a fadeaway jumper even when he's like you know just outside the charge circle or a a hook shot that's just not a high percentage shot for him he doesn't have unbelievable touch or anything like that the hands 
where there's still some flubs there some other ones where he caught it pretty well but uh you know we didn't really see him switching on the perimeter at all he did a very good job of running the floor we didn't you know this wasn't like a good offense he was going against so we didn't see him really in space or anything I but the the idea that oh we need some size when we're going up against a big team we'll throw him out there I don't think that's going to work. He's not going to be able to guard, you know, Nikola Jokic in the post or, or DeAndre Ayton or some, something like that. Like that, or I, I think, like you said, it's they're going to play him. They'll give him a shot, and then he's going to be nailed to the bench during the playoffs. I think maybe they'll try him against some of these big teams, and I just would be very surprised if he succeeds. But you know, like Kaminga, I mean, he could just get a bunch of dunks around the rim potentially, and like that is a skill. But that's that's really all he does well at this point is dunk uncontested or get alley oops or whatever. Let's go to a team that played in another national TV game, this one on Sunday, the Dallas Mavericks. The Mavs are up to 42-26, and 26, thanks to 7-1 and one since the last 15-60. and 60. They're ninth in net rating, plus 3.4, 15th on offense, 6th on defense. 538's Raptor model projects they'll finish with 50 wins, which would be 5th in the Western Conference. And they got a big one of those wins as we're getting into the, we're still a little bit early, but it looks like the 456 is going to be an absolute brutal battle. And they got a big win beating the Boston Celtics in the Garden 95-92. Yeah, they shot 15 and 37 from three. Celtics were awful 9-37. And I think the biggest takeaway for me was that Luka Doncic just continues to be a massive problem, even for what's maybe the best defense in the NBA in the fourth quarter. Overall, the Celtics defense was pretty good. They're still a, a good defense. They forced a bunch of turnovers. Mavs were under 50% from two. However, Luka Doncic, what they tried against him did not particularly work. Uh, they do this thing, the Celtics, where they try and keep Rob Williams and Al Horford, if he's the center on the back line, and Dallas was just very methodical. They weren't running a ton of plays. They closed it with Brunson and Dinwiddie out there with Doncic. And so when the Celtics who would normally just like to switch well that didn't work they didn't feel comfortable with rob williams on luca luca was getting double teamed he would find maxi Kleba. I mean, it's just a extremely difficult lineup to defend with the shooting of kleba you've got playmaking with brunson and dinwiddie and then they also had finney smith out there so basically five out with luka Doncic. they double team him at the point of attack he'd find kleba on the roll and then kleba would get it to one of the guards who was able to play make and they were getting wide open threes or even they could get it back to Luca late in the possession for him to attack. And so it just, I felt like the Celtics is one of the few times that you didn't see them with many answers. Then they tried to switch Williams onto Luca, and Luca beat him a couple of times there as well. He, he hit. They, I, one thing I've liked about Luca's three point game recently is he's not necessarily taking like the hard step back to his left. He's more often doing this move now where he kind of pretends like he's going to drive right and then just doesn't really step back, but just brings his right foot back to his left foot. And he's just more on balance for that shot. He's getting it off more quickly, shooting it a little bit more more conventionally i think that is part of why his percentage has gone up a little bit from the outside uh so i, I thought that we, we talked specifically about the end of the game but that was the thing that stuck out to me is that even this team that has these great mobile bigs like could not guard that unit at the end of the game 
it was an extremely important factor on the definitive shot of the game, but we'll get to that a little bit later. I had Seth Partnow on Real GM Radio this past week, and we talked, one of the things we discussed was that there will be a playoff series defined by how how many of the open shots created for Dallas's support players go in. In this game, Dorian Finney-Smith, four of seven. Dinwiddie, three of six. Brunson, two of four. Berton's only one of three. And so overall, the team was 40% from, from three. They generated 37 of them. Boston attempted the same number, but only made nine of those 37. And Boston, you know, they got they got eight steals of the 17 turnovers that they generated, which was more, more than you expect, but sometimes the ball was pinging around a little bit. That can happen. And I was interested in also how the Boston Celtics were going to attack the Mavericks de- defensively in Dallas. You know, both these teams have been keyed by their defenses during this run and ended up being just as an impressively defensive oriented game helped by de- Boston not making any threes. But I thought that Dallas did a great job defending them overall. Yeah, they did. Dallas now is allowing the lowest percentage from three in the NBA, 34.1%. Boston second, 34.2%. And then since January 1st, which is when they really have gotten a lot better defensively, and they are better defensively, Dallas is only allowing 32.1% from three and 31% on above the break threes. So that may be somewhat lucky to be sure, uh, but they are still, and they're only 12th in location e-field goal percentage defense, and they're not unbelievable at protecting the rim, at least in terms of a percentage allowed. And then they're pretty much middle of the pack in terms of number of shots allowed at the rim. And they are very good, though, at preventing three-point attempts to begin with. So they're not allowing a lot of three-point attempts, and teams are shooting poorly on them. And that's that's a combination where you might start to think, okay, if you're also not allowing that many threes, that means you probably defend the three-point line pretty well. And so maybe uh, opponent shots are, are a little bit more difficult as a result of that. Spencer Dinwiddie continues to be awesome. He's shooting over 40% from three since he came to Dallas. That's That, again, is probably going to drop off a little bit. I mean, he's been very confident, and he's he's been empowered there in a way that he wasn't to be a scorer again in, in Washington. And, and what else should we talk about it from this game or, or about this team? There was a controversial call late, a controversial review, and I don't know why. Well, well here, let's actually, I mean, let's go through the last few possessions. Sure, if we're sure. Gonna, if we're going to get into that. Uh, so, Boston. Boston is still up three with a minute 20 left. They actually switched Horford and Rob Williams onto Luca and got a couple of stops. But then Luca got that step back that I mentioned earlier to tie it with a buck 20 left. I thought that the Mavs defense again looked pretty good down the end like Luke actually this wasn't right at the end of the game but he actually got back-to-back stops on Tatum and Jalen Brown and then they tried to get Tatum isolated on Dinwiddie at the foul line off a pick and roll switch and Tatum got a pretty good look but Dinwiddie was an okay contest Tatum missed it to try to break the tie and then coming back down they did double team Luca early in the possession there was about I think an eight second differential yeah at that point and so maybe you're not necessarily trying to run the time all the way down in that circumstance but they doubled early in the possession it didn't look like dallas was really trying hard to attack finally they get it back to luca guarded by jillian brown and luca drives by him 
Marcus Smart was able, was getting ready to step up to maybe take a charge or force a pass. But Rob Williams, like the defense was scrambled from early in the possession when they double teamed on top. Rob Williams was guarding Spencer Dinwiddie up top and he just made a bad decision to overhelp there and gave up the wide open three to Dinwiddie. And Dinwiddie made that shot. Al Horford thought about coming over to scramble, but it was late. You know, he, I don't think he expected Robert Williams to do what he did. And so then Dallas makes that three. So they're up 95, 92. Yeah. With- but by the way, Spencer Dinwiddie, uh, John Schumann had this stat. His last season in Brooklyn, his last full season with Brooklyn, so this was when KD wasn't available. This is the season when he and Kyrie missed a lot of it, so this was 1920. He was 2 out of 24 on clutch threes, and he is 8 for 16 on clutch threes this season. Boston has the ball, about 12 seconds to go, and that's in the gray area where you you, you'd like to get a three up and where some teams foul, some teams don't. You're not... You have enough time left where you can foul and it doesn't have to be a, sh- a shooting shooting infraction. And they sub in Peyton Pritchard and eventually the ball finds Marcus Smart. And I mean, yes, you want to contest. This isn't a, it's, you're not up four. So it's not a circumstance where the only thing you can't do is foul. But Smart goes up for the three and Lu- Luca gets called for the three shot foul, which is just crushing to the Dallas Mavericks because you give a guy three, sh- three shots to potentially tie the game. And I, I had actually just arrived in the media room at Chase Center when this happened, and I don't know why I am very attuned to high five contact. It's just like one of those things, and I think the league should actually call it should call it as a foul less often. Should understand that you know, and but this was maybe the closest high five contact I have ever seen that was not a foul. So I agree with the call being overturned, but. Because the idea is that you have the ball has to be out of your hands because otherwise it's affecting it and that's a different thing. But Luca Luca's hand hit Smart's hand a fractions of a second after the ball left, and so thus the yeah, contact. Well, and it's not only that too. I think it's if you're interfering with the guy's follow through, like if it's, if you're hitting his hand, you know, kind of before the because like, I'm not sure exactly what the temporal situation is when you follow through. If you if you get hit before that gooseneck is complete, is that a foul that you're interfering with the follow through, even if the ball is like technically left the hand? Uh, you know, this was very close, as you said. I'm not sure exactly when it's so. Like, is it the ball leaving the hand, or is it when your follow through is totally complete? I think it probably is the ball leaving the hand. Um, but yeah, as you said, I think it was the right call, right? Like they they give us that last angle from the the opposite sideline, the low angle, and then you could see that his follow through really was kind of complete. So great challenge by kid, and he was able to do it because he had two timeouts left. Because if he could have been in a situation, he only had one timeout left where because there was what maybe four point eight left, I think at this point four point nine left. So you could be in a situation where like, ooh, I want to challenge but like these challenges really get granted and i'd like to be able to advance the ball if he makes all three free throws so but he didn't have to make that decision because they had two timeouts left and so then it was the jump ball which led to more interesting timeout stuff it did and you had a jump ball luca versus robert williams and the expectation was that the Celtics were going to were going to gain possession, which they did. But it was, how is this going to happen? Because 4.9 left, in a normal circumstance, you would be worried about committing a shooting foul. You know, that's in the point where you can get into the motion pretty quickly. But because it was off of a jump ball, there is going to be a control that is not that is not in a shooting action. And so I think what Ime Odoka was very afraid of, and justifiably so, was that the Mavericks would foul on the catch. 
and then that wouldn't be a shooting foul, and, and so you could you could get into that. So it just so happens through a really nice touch by Robert Williams, he hits the ball to Tatum, and I believe it was Dorian Finney-Smith, is kind of going for the foul, but he misses, and Tatum actually gets a clean shot off. But Uroka had already called the timeout, and I believe he called it just because your assumption cannot be that everything is going to break exactly right for you the way that it did on that play. No, I, I think that's right. And yeah, I, I think he basically was like, yeah, as soon as we get the ball, we're going to call timeout. And then also just not only from a fouling standpoint, but just generally you're going to recover the ball right at half court with under yeah. five seconds left. It's just going to be hard to get into a shot if you can then call timeout and then inbound the ball right to the three-point line with no time coming off the clock while the ball is in the air on the inbound then you're probably in a better situation even without this fouling aspect but as it turned out I, I think if I were a coach like we've heard this before I can't remember who it was I think it was Fred Hoiberg who was like yes you know I, I can't say when it is that I decide to foul because that would be giving up uh, too much of a strategic advantage I think if I were a coach I would just say I foul every time because I think you really can get into the other team's head that way right because they inbound the ball to Tatum well number one Yudoka probably called that first time out because he was worried about a foul and then they inbound the ball to Tatum and because Tatum is worried about getting fouled with no timeouts left he just has to go up with the shot from about 29 feet fading away right away because he thought if he puts the ball on the floor he would get fouled but he if he had just taken one dribble he actually could have gotten a much better look but because he was freaked out about the foul he got it up right away they didn't try to foul as it turned out and he took a much more difficult shot and that was it so i i think i would always I want the other team thinking that I'm going to foul. Yes. And and maybe I'm not going to sometime, but I want to freak them out and make them take a much worse shot than they would otherwise because they're scared I'm going to foul. Anything else on the maps? No, no. Let's get to the Utah Jazz and the San Antonio Spurs. Which stats do you want to do? So we'll do one now and do one. Yeah, let's, let's start with the Spurs who are 26 and 42. That 26 means that Greg Popovich is now the all-time wins leader. He needed 20 to beat Don Nelson. Spurs are only two and five though in the last two weeks. Negative 0.9 net rating is 20th. They are 18th on offense, 19th on defense. They project to get to 32 wins, which would be the 11th seed, but they're still kind of in the mix. Pels and Lakers aren't exactly running away from them. They got 3% chance of the playoffs per Raptors, 6% per ELO. Um, a lot of pop head geographies have been going around. I think I will save the retrospective and where he ranks among coaches and all that for when he does retire because he's still kind of building his legacy to be sure. So let's talk about this game where they actually beat Utah. You and I watched the game against Toronto thinking there was a chance that that was when Popovich was going to get the wins record, and he did not. Of course, he got it just mere days later on on that same homestand. And I thought this was a really fascinating game. I watched it knowing that the Spurs won. I watched it the following. I watched it the next morning. And if I hadn't known that the Spurs won at when I was watching at the end of the third quarter, I would have been dumbfounded. You know, I got that that at what ended up happening because this looked a lot like a kind of a standard jazzy game where they were up the low double digits at halftime. They were up 11 after three and then started pushing the lead a little bit. And Utah was up 15 with 10 minutes to go. And from that point, the wheels really fell off the wagon for the Utah Jazz. And there are a couple of different places to give credit to for that run. I thought part of it was by virtue of Rudy Gobert, you know, he runs in this three stint 
pattern plays that that stretch at the end of the first early second which typically goes incredibly well for the Utah Jazz and Hassan Whiteside is you know and he had a very good offensive game he and he's not a you know he's a talented defensive center he's just not nearly as good as Rudy Gobert and what we saw was the stretch from you know like I think it was about like the seven minute mark eight minute mark to the 530 mark where San Antonio is like, okay, you got to get all your stuff in now because Rudy Gobert is out of the game and we know he's going to come back in. And I thought that was a really definitive stretch for them. They were more confident on their drives. Jakob Pertl got a couple of things going then. Uh, and also, as has been the case for fair portions of this year, a, a, a big part of what worked well for San Antonio's offense was DeJounte Murray hitting tough pull-up twos. But he did. You know, six and nine from on mid range, mid rangers from this game, and yeah. so and that's the shot that's going to be there against this Utah defense. Absolutely, it's going to be there against this Utah defense. Dejounte Murray was two of nine in the paint, but he was six of nine on those on those twos, and so they got and they got a couple of big threes during that stretch. They got a um, Josh Richardson who who played first started and played well for the, for the Spurs in this one. He he drew a big charge and and got and I, I believe it was a flagrant on it. it. McDermott uh, was out for this. One. Yes. Yes, McDermott was out. Um, and even though they lost, so 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 the San Antonio, you know, the definitive part of this was that they had this big comeback. They went from 15 down to tied in four minutes and 30 seconds of game time. And then it was a pretty chaotic ending. But that's the most important part, Pop getting the wins record. But for me, you know, not knowing necessarily, and I knew what the result was, but not knowing, like I didn't look at the box score or anything like that. It was another reminder of how ridiculous Rudy Gobert is as a defensive player. I mean, he was just affecting so many shots, only got credit for five blocks, but he affected significantly more shots than that. I don't have the Gobert versus Whiteside splits, but the Jazz, 14 of 24 in the restricted area and 7 of 17. These are two of the, you know, you have two great rim-protecting centers in this game. You saw it with both of them. And I brought up Josh Richardson. One of the other dynamics of this game, for well and for ill at a couple different moments, was that Bojan Bogdanovic didn't play. And so they started Daniel House in his stead. And, I, and there were times that, and especially in the early going, where I thought that actually looked good because we did small forward rankings late in last week. And I talked about how Royce O'Neal has had a usage rate below 10 each of the last three seasons. And Royce O'Neal, he has a very specific role within this Utah Jazz team. And he did technically have five assists in this game, but he's typically not that aggressive. You know, he's doing he's doing his thing and that's about it. Daniel House, by virtue of being Daniel House, has more agency. And there were a couple times where him being more confident taking the three, him looking to drive, produced some really good stuff and that they were able to, you know, he was getting into the teeth of defense. However, it then also led to one play where he had just a truly horrendous miss late in a fading corner three when the game was still kind of in the offing. And that that ended up kind of, that it didn't end it, but that was, it made it a lot harder for the Jazz to come back. So I wonder where Daniel House's place is on the full strength jazz in the playoffs but i do like that he gives them something different yeah and i've wondered about what it would look like are there going to be times when they need to play o'neill and house together to actually and if you do that you've actually got three reasonable defenders on the floor and i've liked the way house has competed defensively i think he's been moving his feet better as a jazz man than we saw from him in houston playing more obviously in houston it was switching defending in isolation now he's had had to do 
more of getting over screens, trying to stay attached, which I think he's done a better job of. Uh, for Utah, though, Mike Conley had another nightmare. And yeah. He was awful in that game that we did against Utah. He was 2 of 14 in this one. And they, I think they actually sat him down in the next game, right, against Sacramento, which they won. I can't remember. Yes. I know he, he didn't. Sat he, it was, that was a back-to-back. He didn't play in that one. Yeah. And, yeah. But, and he's been playing back-to-backs. Remember, I mean, he played all of those games in that three games and four nights stretch that concluded in Dallas last week. And he, I mean, I think he was, Tony Jones had the stats that he was shooting, like, over his last 10 games, he was shooting, like, 24% from the field. Just, like, really really bad so and uh, Con- Conley had some bad. good defensive plays and had some good assists in this one but yeah the shot absolutely was not falling for him and yeah, I mean he was, he was one out of eight on twos yeah one out of eight on twos and we saw a lot of guys struggle from two-point range in this contest Pirtle Whiteside and of course Rudy Gobert protecting the rim and so one guy who I, I, I chuckled was really affected by that is Keldon Johnson who he loves those like bowling ball headlong drives and there is no worse team to do that against than the Utah Jazz because if Gobert is back and so he was four of eight in the paint and then Johnson who's shooting over 40 percent from three this year was one of seven that that wasn't really Gobert or anything really that just didn't happen to fall in this game but you also saw it in terms of, like the shots that Jakob Pertle took I cracked up. I realized about halfway through this game that this is the second Jazz Spurs game I've done for 15 and 60 this year. And did that one that Derek White actually led the comeback in Utah earlier this year. And both of those games, Jakob Pertl had had tough push shot attempts from like deep floater range because he just didn't want to get all the way in there against Rudy Gobert. And Pertl also like the free th- he the free throw shooting motion is really weird. It's like it kind of the best way I can describe it. It's like he's palming the ball in one hand and just kind of pushing. It. It's, it's he's trying a bunch of different yeah. stuff it's none it, of it's basically the, the same motion as his weirdo free throws but he yeah he shoots better on those floaters than he does he does yeah and and i you i talked about the kind of the good and the bad of daniel house i think we also got some of that with Dejounte murray defensively where he had a couple of possessions be, where with the jazz having two dominant ball handlers murray's guarding the off ball player and is just so intently watching the ball that you know like there was a couple where he let donovan mitchell lose for catch and shoot threes Mitchell in the game was four of 11 from long distance. And a lot of those were actually the catch and shoot variety. And we talked about that uh, on the NBA strategy stream that we did last week. And there were other points where that attention really worked well for the Jazz. There's a, a play where I think it was Mitchell threw a pass to the opposite corner and he felt full confidence that the guy was going to be there. And there are maybe two players in the NBA that you would have it that would like kind of have a chance of like getting to a ball like that. One of them is DeJounte. The other one is Matisse Thibel. Incidentally, two guys from the University of Washington. And so you get a couple of plays like that and you give up a couple open threes that can that can work out in the net. And I mean, DeJounte had five, five steals, only had four turnovers in the game. And I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about DeJounte Murray as in like a lead creator. I thought that he the, the Spurs didn't generate a ton of really good looks for their perimeter players. They were and they didn't really want most of the time those like pick and pop threes, the stuff that the Jazz kind of always concede. But one of the wrinkles of this game was 
at one point, Pop went to Gobert was out there for some of it. I think Whitehead was out for some of it. A combination of Zach Collins and Jock Landale. And I think part of the theory of that was you have two guys that can both pick and pop. But the problem is the theory of playing two bigs together is that you can, you know, that you can maybe mash, get some offensive rebounds. And Collins did get a couple overall in the game and that you're protecting the rim. But like a Collins-Landale combo doesn't really do either of those things particularly well. I just wish they had played more smalls, but they just didn't have that many smalls to play in this game yeah. in the first place. Keldon Johnson is probably really their only four that it had been playing for the right. that was available. And this, this is a very interesting game. I mean, you could see a lot of the statistical markers. Both teams got a ton of offensive rebounds because there are a ton of missed shots. Spurs were six of 29 from three. Spurs have the second highest percentage in the NBA of assisted baskets, but had only 15 assists on 34 field goals, generally because three-pointers that are made are going to be assisted. They didn't make any of those. Buckets off of offensive rebounds are not going to be assisted they they had a few of those so i i thought they i mean to go six to 29 from three 21 percent and still beat a team a good team like the jazz at home down bogdanovich sure but with the rest of their team available it was a really nice win for this the spurs we can finish up here on the jazz unless you had anything else you wanted to talk about from this oh we, we, we should do their stats before we get yeah, into that's what i was gonna say sure. uh, they are 42 and 25 five and three since last 15 and 60 they did take care of sacramento last night uh, Jordan Clarkson had 45 in that game uh yeah yeah that, despite the absence of Rudy Gobert with a we were concerned when we first saw this I mean it was the second night of a back-to-back it was a but it was termed a left foot first metatarsal phalangeal joint sprain but it turns out that there's optimism that he's going to be able to return very shortly according to Tim McMahon uh Jazz are second in net rating plus 7.5 first on offense still by a mile 10th on defense and they project for the four seed with 52 wins but again as you mentioned that denver dallas and utah mix in the four through six is going to be pretty intense but they will of course be making the playoffs let us speak now of the memphis grizzlies danny yeah let's do it the grizz are 47 and 22 Five and two since the last 15 and 60. Sixth in the NBA in net rating, plus 5.3 per 100 possessions. Top 10 in both offense and defense. Fifth in offense, eighth in defense. And the Raptor model projects that they will finish one game clear of the Golden State Warriors for the second seed in the Western Conference. And they got an important return on Sunday when Dylan Brooks not only returned from this severe left ankle sprain, but he started and played 26 minutes in their 125-118 victory. But that is not the game we're going to focus on. We're instead going to focus on the game they played against the Knicks. Yeah, well, we could we could talk a little bit about the situation uh, with Brooks. I mean, 26 minutes, he'll probably get back to playing more than that. He, he did start. He had not played since January 8th. If you go back and look at their rotation in the last healthy game that Brooks played against Detroit on January 6th, Zaire Williams still started that game, but that's because Desmond Bain missed that one. Tonight, in their 125-118 win over OKC, they went back to that regular starting lineup. They still got 22 minutes for Zaire Williams, although it was a blowout most of the way. OKC made it close with a 39-point fourth quarter, but they're still playing their guys most of the way. Morant, Bain. Jaron, nobody played more than 33 minutes in this one. So, and Brooks was uh, six of 14. So he, he definitely was not shy about getting the shots up in 26 minutes. Would, would you have you know, expected anything else? No, no, I, I would not have expected anything else. Uh, 
on that. So I, I think it'll just be interesting how much is Zaire Williams going to play? How much is Kyle Anderson going to play? How much is Anthony Melton going to play? Like those are the three guys that they're probably going to be playing different amounts of minutes than they were. And also actually it probably would trickle down to Tyus Jones as well because it's uh, much less likely that he would play minutes with Morant. Uh, Tyus Jones did close this game against the Knicks though. And there have been some of their big comeback wins where the, he and Ja have played together. The Knicks led it 96-81 with a minute left in the third. Julius Randle was going absolutely crazy. They had no answers for him. And then they held Julius Randle completely scoreless in the fourth quarter. Uh, they won in a 30-10 run. And Ja Morant, who was in the midst of an incredibly difficult game, outscored the Knicks 19-17 at one point in the fourth quarter during the before it kind of got into desperation mode. Um, the other thing that really stood out was Jaron Jackson Jr. doesn't get talked about very much in Defensive Player of the Year. There's kind of this, uh, all the usual candidates now haven't played that many games. I mean, to me, it, Gobert is the obvious pick uh, at, at this point. But if people get voted fatigue on him, Jackson, this would be on his highlight reel for that. He had three blocks in the fourth quarter as the Knicks, of course, were playing their big center. So Jackson was able to just guard that guy. Steven Adams went out with an injury early on, although he was he was back against his old team, the Thunder, um, in the next game. So Jackson was closing. They put Brandon Clark on Randall. Clark did a pretty nice job of not falling on Randall's one post-up move where he goes across the lane and tries to bring his arms through the defender and get fouled. And then Jackson was there behind him and it blocked a couple of shots as well. So that their defense was really awesome. And then Ja, I mean, I, I just have no idea where he got the energy because he looked so fatigued late in the fir- third, early in the fourth, and then somehow managed to summon this level of energy. I mean, he had this one play in transition. I think it was RJ Barrett who was back. And Barrett, you know, he's got four inches on John Morant. You'd think he might be able to protect the rim against him. But John just, he takes off from so much further away than anyone thinks he's going to that you just can't get in the air quickly enough. But he finished the layup there. Um, it was just a, another of these like really impressive job performance with the relentlessness with which he just kept attacking, even though it was obvious the fatigue level. I was just incredibly impressed because he just was like going into the paint time and time again against a team that really specializes in protecting. Theory. This is also the type of win that is could be extremely important in terms of deciding the two seed in the Western Conference because yeah. it's going to be games like this. And as far as we can tell right now, the difference between the two seed and the three seed in the West is probably the most important single seed difference. There will be one in the East. We just don't know what that is. Whereas in the West, we can be pretty sure that it's going to be the two versus the three because there are six stronger teams. And then you have the play-in group, which is probably going to be Minnesota, the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Pelicans, though somebody else could sneak in there for sure, as we talked about in the Spurs section. And so that means if you're the two seed, you're facing a play-in team as opposed to facing one of that four through six bloodbath. And Memphis has this, I mean, they already got a big jump on it, but they have this incredibly soft schedule the rest of the year as we're recording this podcast. Memphis now, they I mean, they just played OKC, so that, that shifts things a little bit. They have the 10th easiest remaining schedule and the team that's their primary competition, the Warriors, 17th. So that's, that's a, a meaningful difference. That's in terms purely yeah, I, strength. I mean, this, the, like if Golden State hadn't righted the ship in these last two games, 
games against it's the Bucks are actually favored against them. Yeah, on Saturday, and I've, I'm guessing the Nuggets were probably favored against them on Friday. If Golden State doesn't win those two games, like this race might have been over completely. It, it might have been so, over, and, and and the Grizz do have the tie break, I believe, as of now. If they played, maybe they they only play have only played twice, but I know they play one more time in Memphis. They've this year. Sp- they've split. They have played three times so far this year, and Memphis has won two of those three. And they play one more time Monday, March 28th, which I believe yeah, is I believe is a home game for Memphis in the second night of a back-to-back for Golden State. Hmm, interesting. Um, but yeah, this is one of those ones where, hey, you lose this one at home, the game that you're not supposed to lose, although the Knicks are shockingly good against the Western Conference somehow. They're over 500 against the West and uh, had some pretty good games. You know, they beat Golden State. They blew out the Clippers on the West Coast. They've had some nice West Coast wins. They almost beat Phoenix as well. Um, the other thing that was crazy in this game is the Grizz had 18 offensive rebound and 16 blocked shots jackson had five and brandon clark had four and melton of course because he's just a crazy good shot blocking guard had three in in 18 minutes but yeah, I, I do think it'll be getting Brooks back now and getting him reintegrated to get one more offensive threat. Have that one guy that you can put on great scores on the perimeter. And as nicely as Zaire Williams has played at times or Melton or Conchar, I mean, they've gotten really good contributions from a lot of these guys. Like those guys are good at, as Dylan Brooks. So replacing those guys with like a really quality starter like Brooks, I think the Grizz are only, once he gets reintegrated, on the takeoff. Who's next here? Let's go to the LA Clippers, the team we will do for the NBA strategy stream on Monday against the Cleveland Cavaliers. That is a seven o'clock Eastern, four o'clock Pacific game. If you want to watch it with us on League Pass, should be a lot of fun. The Clippers for the season, 36 and 34, five and three since the last 15 and 60, barely below water net rating, negative 0.2 is 18th, 26th in offense, seventh in defense, same dynamic we've seen pretty much this whole year. And Ty Lue's team projected for 42 wins, which is the, which would of course be the eight seed. And five thirty eight's model has been notoriously low on the Lakers, which I mean, we'll talk about them in a little bit. This it could be well-founded. But right now, as we're recording this, the Clippers are four games clear of the seven seed in the loss column and four games clear of the eight seed in the other way. So they might actually get kind of, they might get their own buffer enough that they can really get their guys ready for the playoffs. It's a little too early for that, but I think that's where this is going. And uh, remember that the Raptor and Elo playoff odds, that's about making it into the final eight, 72% chance and 73% chance respectively. What I wanted to look at as the kind of the main focus is how things are going for Terrence Mann, one of the breakout players of the 2021 playoffs, is having his age 25 season. And this has been a little bit of a down year for Terrence Mann compared to last year. It was at 60% true shooting last year. Um, and he's at 57% on 15.6 usage. So if you think about every position getting even, that's below that's below an even split. And it is good that Terrence Mann is shooting well from threes at 37%. But it's important that that's on an extremely low frequency. Mann is only taking 3.2 three-pointers per 36 minutes. Why he's still yeah, been... And, a- and also as well, he takes... 40% of those threes from the corner, which is, especially for a guard, is a, a very high number. It is. And, and so that shows, it, just, it can, just it, shows that he's not as comfortable above the break. So you're talking about him basically taking like two above the break. Sure. And the reason that man is still effective is that he's over 50% on twos, which is a, which 
is a good threshold for guards. Yeah. And but 45 dunks as well for mm-hmm. like a 6-4 guard. Bet. And that 53% on twos, 67% in the restricted area. But I'm a little bit concerned that man is shooting 50% from floater range and over 40 on mid-rangers. Typically, guys don't do that you know like they don't they don't do both of those and i don't think a man is being an exceptionally good floater player but one of the things i wanted to look into a little bit and by the way those two zones comprise 31 (laughs) percent of his shots which is more than i would have expected because he's not really a guy who creates his own offense well you wouldn't think he'd be taking that many floats all right well he's doing more of that now so that was something i wanted to look into is like what is his role what is his role within the offense and it's mostly as expected you know large portion transition and spot ups but terrence band has run 168 pick and rolls so far this year and they've gone pretty well uh, a, a full point per possession as a score and a, just shade under that if you include passes both of those are above average and pick and roll can be a lot of different things but terrence band over a point per possession on 58 pick and roll jumpers not you know it's so it's not just driving to the basket i watched some of the film i didn't see anything that was just jaw dropping this wasn't watching the shea film from two years ago or something like that but it is a little wrinkle that's been added to his game that largely probably won't matter when they get their other guys back but he is looking a little bit more comfortable with the ball in his hands and then i wanted to look into i i I know reggie jackson has had some good games he's had some bad games over the last little while you know like i was thinking like oh maybe he has these nice splits after the all-star break because i know he had some real trouble beforehand yeah Reggie Jackson has been under 55% true shooting every single month of the 21-22 season and under 50% true shooting in four of the six months, October, December, February, and March, which we are currently in. A big part of that is that you know the the frontier, the relationship between usage and efficiency is, is such an important thing to understand. And so that's why it's always so important, going back to Pascal Siakam a couple of years ago and a few others, where when somebody can ramp up their usage and either increase their true shooting or just even keep it even. And Reggie Jackson has a much larger role within the Clippers offense this year, and he's much less efficient, which is what you'd pretty much expect, especially when their surrounding talent is worse, which is part of why Reggie Jackson is taking more shots. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be one of the highest usage increases of anybody in the whole league to go from 20 to 28 percent and you know that's something i talked about a lot with sabrina merchant before the season started of like which reggie jackson are we getting are we getting playoff reggie jackson from last year are we getting regular season reggie from last year and the hope was that he could be kind of in between those two but in reality he's actually been at least from an efficiency standpoint much worse than he was a, a season ago with it, that 49 percent true shooting overall it's a good new it's it's a good thing for Lakers fans that they have that winning time show on HBO because that would probably be more pleasant for us to talk about than this current Lakers squad that is I, I can't I can't watch that show like when it's I I have like seen all these people in person like I just an, it should just be a documentary it's not I don't need to see like actors playing Jerry West and Magic Jump I may watch part of it because I didn't I didn't, didn't grow up a basketball fan so I don't appreciate I watched I enjoyed watching Magic but I like I wasn't a basketball fan so I might get a little something more out of it than you would but it's still better than watching the current Lakers who are after their absolute evisceration at the hands of the Phoenix Suns 140 to 111 a game when Phoenix scored 48 points in the first quarter 
Um, but, well, was there something maybe motivating them? Maybe uh, maybe a quote before the game? I don't know that they needed that motivation, but yeah, Anthony well, Davis. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Devin Booker did say that they saw the quote, but it would have ha- the game would have happened like that anyway, even if they didn't see it, which I thought was great. Yes. That was, that was a but, great response. So the Lakers are now 29 and 38 on the season. They are a deeply disappointing two and six since the last 15 and 60 they are negative three after this game negative three and by the way all it takes for them to win a game is just lebron going for 50 why doesn't he just do that every game and then they can win every game then they could because that's the only two they've won in the last two weeks it is and so now after this loss they're 23rd in net rating negative three and i mean remember they're in the they're in the play they're going to probably be in the playing game and they're 23rd in net rating 25th in offense 109.6 and 17th in defense 112.5 which i believe is meaningfully the worst of the Frank Vogel era there. Yeah. I, I mean, let's not forget this Suns game too. Like Chris Paul didn't play. Right. This is, this is like, like, you know, uh, uh yeah. So you, you mentioned the Frank Vogel era. I, I guess we could just, the quote from Davis was because he met with the media for, because everyone has to meet with the media once when they're injured. And he was asked because they were playing the Suns, like if his groin injury is the main reason the Lakers beat the Suns. And he says, it was, we know that they know that they got away with one, which, and I, I do agree with him on that. But, uh, unfortunately the, the surrounding talent uh, for the Lakers is uh, far worse this year. Oh, yeah. But we're going to focus. You want to focus on the 50 piece that LeBron dropped on the less robust Washington Wizards. Yeah. So the 56 point game that he had against Golden State that happened on a Saturday, we didn't get a chance to talk about it because we were doing the East last week. That was him dominating at the basket. He was 10 of 13 at the rim and Golden State really had no answers for them. And the rest of the Lakers were shooting well. So he was able to get right the basket. This was much more of him just getting really hot from the outside six of nine from downtown five of six on mid-rangers when i went through the film i thought it was going to be him abusing kyle kuzma he only had a couple on kuzma though i thought kuzma defended him pretty well on some of the isos one and he goes lebron is all about that right shoulder fadeaway i mean i think pretty much every one of these jumpers except for one was a right shoulder turnaround but he hit one sick one going right where he contorted his body in the air along the right baseline as well he threw one just like double his normal arc from the right elbow uh i mean there is something really awesome when lebron gets going with the jumper like that it doesn't happen all that often because it's not like his main thing it's kind of the same thing when mj would hit threes which didn't happen that often like in that game one in 1992 finals or you know for lebron i think it was game two of 2018 against toronto where he just went completely insane in the third quarter and just started hitting all these shots and this felt just like that it it was really enjoyable to watch uh he also actually got a nice little chemistry with austin reeves you don't see this this much but lebron assisted reeves twice as the role man and reeves assisted lebron twice as the role man that was pretty cool in this game the other problem for washington was Kristaps porzingis just didn't have any kind of a place to be defensively they started him off on stanley johnson stanley johnson has been starting you may recall that he uh was signed as a COVID hardship earlier in the season and is now stuck around to be considered one of their five best players apparently and you know austin reeves is one of their five best players monk you know carmelo is either closing games for them or their sixth man with, with davis out uh 
but Porzingis wasn't able to provide much help at the rim when LeBron did get going there. Um, the fourth quarter was when he really got going with a bunch of these crazy jumpers. He had 14 points on six of six from the field in the fourth quarter to actually bring the Lakers back to win pretty comfortably. LeBron definitely wanted to get to his 50, though. He was hunting it towards the end, but didn't have to hunt it for very long because he made all of his shots in the fourth quarter. But it was well in hand, but he stuck in. And hey, in a shitty season like this, like, why not go ahead and get 50? And LeBron now is the first person to score 50 points twice after turning 35. That's really impressive. And he did it in two out of three games at home. But the Lakers also have, I think, like, maybe... Let's go through the rest of their schedule, and you tell me how many of these games you would favor them. with. The, oh, and actually, before we do that, the latest injury news on AD had this interview, and he said that he's very optimistic about returning. Uh, as far as a number of something, I'd love to say 100%, but with only a certain amount of games left, they only have 16 games left, he's not 100% sure. Obviously, doesn't help that they would need to immediately go into the play-in as well but i mean i think this was his four-week reevaluation because he heard it right before the all-star break and you know he just now has gotten the swelling to where he can even do any on-court work even shooting yeah and the season ends uh, less than a month from today it's uh, april 10th is the last day and as we're recording this is march 13th yeah, so, uh, I mean, may, perhaps the biggest watchers of this will be the Grizz and the Pels. Also, should know how many games they play against the Grizz and Pels going forward here. But, yeah, let, let's take a look at these guys' remaining schedule. Uh, here, I'll, I'll say the game and you can say, okay. Okay, okay good, good. They host the Raptors. Loss. At Minnesota. Loss. At Toronto. Loss. At the Wiz. 50-50. At the Cavs. On a back-to-back. Oh, sorry, not a back-to-back. There's a game off. There's Dale. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you'd say probably. I, I, it, maybe they would be favored in Washington. We, we have to see. I, I don't think they would be favored in Cleveland. Then they come like, They come, They come. come. home I mean, this for... isn't a 100% chance that they're going to lose these games. But we're just yes. talking, are they favored or not? Yes. Yeah. Um, they come back for one game to host the Sixers. Yeah. Let's Next. Then they go on a three-game road trip. New Orleans. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I imagine CJ and Ingram will be back by then. Ingram, they said... Like, like seven to ten days for his hamstring cj had the COVID diagnosis so I, if those guys are back and new Orleans is at home i think they're favored dallas loss utah loss i mean these are both on the road yes too. then they come home and face the pelicans again i mean this is so fascinating well the pels have so much incentive to win i mean number one they wouldn't would like to get the nine seed and number two if they could finish go ahead of the lakers and push them back then they have a much better chance of keeping that lakers pick as well i mean those new orleans is as it's a, a lot of uh a lot of motivation for the franchise in both respects there to win those games very they true do not play memphis again they do not then then the lakers host the denver nuggets loss two game road trip against the suns and the warriors yeah, I mean, you imagine, uh, I mean, the Suns might be taking it easy by that point. They'll probably have the number one seed locked up. They should. But C- That's CP the final might be coming back, so they'll, around then, so they'll probably want to get him back in rhythm. I, I mean, it's still, you can't favor them to beat Phoenix, but there, there's a, you know, it's not as bad as it might have normally. Yeah, then at Golden State, Golden State's probably going to have a lot to play for at that point, unless Memphis has already kind of run away with it. Then they host OKC. and uh, I think we can favor them in that one. Yeah, and then at Denver in a game that may or may not matter 
a ton to the Nuggets. Well, or you could see Denver intentionally wanting to lose to help out with their own seeding. Sure. You never know, right? That could happen like, as especially, well. Especially if Golden State is set to be the three. Uh, well, I guess Denver would want to win to avoid the six in that case. Or you know, there's, But maybe they would want to play Memphis rather than play Utah or Dallas. But, but one of the really challenging parts of the schedule for the Lakers is that the easier, like other than the OKC game, the, their April stretch is pretty tough. And so that means if they get Anthony Davis back, yeah, they'll be able to beat more teams, but they're going to have harder games to win. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's Denver, Phoenix, Golden State, Oklahoma City, Denver. I mean, I wouldn't favor them even with AD to win any of those games up OKC. And I, I mean, it seems it would be tough to me for AD to be back by that second New Orleans game on April 1st. Like maybe that would be right about starting. Uh, also, they play, uh, seven straight or six straight games and seven of eight on national TV during this stretch. Whee! So uh, let, let's do a Watfo then. Let's predict how many how many games the the Lakers are going to win the rest of the way. Um, okay, so they have fifteen so games I'll, left. I'm going to say, what are the odds they win five games or more? Five games or more, man. I mean, that's. I mean, this is is a brutal schedule. Do you want to set the line differently? We can set a different line. No, no. I mean, we can set it at whatever. Like that's the beauty of the Briar score, right? Like you can you can adjust for whatever the line is with the percentage. So that they, uh, well, let's say let's say that they win six. Let's okay, six or more yeah, of their getting, final. Getting to five is. All right, I, I'll go first. Do you have your answer? Uh, give me. Okay, I have it. All right, I'm going to say a 40 percent chance that they get to six wins over the stretch. I was going to say 40 as well. Um, I'll go. I mean, if that's 30. what you're going to say, that's what you're going to yeah, say. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, we have this whole long competition. There's we have plenty of plenty of disagreement here. Oh um, man, I'm, I'm I'm looking back at this. I'm already regretting a bunch of these. Well, you're not regretting any of them as much as I'm regretting the Ben Simmons one. <laughs> oh yeah. God I mean, damn it. There's a 90 percent chance he's going to play in that game at Philly. That's I'm true. I'm very angry with myself. However, I did get the I was closer, but much less points on the Simmons getting traded thing. <sighs> All right, well, we've been at this for an hour 25. Let's do one more here. Or is that it? Are we done? I think we are done. Yeah, because the rest of these are research ones. All right, yeah, we got all the games done. All right, well, we'll be back tomorrow, and we will bang out the other eight teams in the Western Conference. We'll talk to you all then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.